story of the temptation of Jesus from one of the Gospels. It's in three of them, uh, so it's a pretty important story, obviously. But uh, one version will do for the moment. Let's just read some other verses that talk about it afterwards, and looking back on it, what it actually meant. And that's from the book of Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 2 talks about the fact that Jesus is not ashamed to call Christians his brothers. And in chapter 2 of Hebrews, in verse 12, it says, He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, Here am I and the children God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and set free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants, people. For this reason he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Turn over one page to Hebrews chapter 4. You find he comes back to the same theme. Verse 14 of Hebrews 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then Approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's all we'll read to start with. We're going to carry on in a moment our uh, journey through the life of Jesus, which will take us all year to conclude. Um, we're looking at it in detail, and that's, that's a great thing to be doing. And this morning, it's about when Jesus was tempted. But just a quick advert for tonight. First, uh, tonight we're doing another great question, and we're talking about the one that uh, one of the world's leading uh, apologetics experts, Greg Kukul, says Christians never know how to answer, <laughs> politely anyhow, and that is the question, do all religions lead to God? If you look at the way that the, the world's religions stack up, you'll see that Christianity is still the world's leading religion. 33% of the world's population claim to be adherents of Christianity, although that's, that's a pretty uh, distant and faint claim in some cases. But uh, still, it's a, it's a sizable chunk. But then when you look at the others, there are plenty of other great world religions. If 24% of, religion, uh, of the world's people are Muslims... That's almost a quarter. Can one in four of the world's population be wrong? Aren't Christians arrogant to say that they have the truth and other people don't? And yet Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And he added, nobody comes to the Father except through me. Is that just cosmic, unspeakable arrogance? Or could it possibly be true? We're living in a more and more multi-faith, multi-racial society. And we need to have good answers, don't we? Because these questions come up more and more. So if you're interested, tonight we're going to have a quick look at, uh, at the whole subject. Uh, uh, a few video clips as well, if we can make them work tonight. But uh, I'll, we'll talk to the same desk afterwards about that. And uh, hopefully just open up the subject this week. Next week, we'll have a look in detail at it and talk about three things that you can actually say to people that uh, would be gracious and positive 
and would, would get you into a conversation. So that's next week, but uh, that's where we'll be going tonight. This morning, though, we're talking about the um, temptation of Jesus. Last time, you might remember, looking back, we were talking about Jesus' baptism, about how he went to the wilderness uh, to see John the Baptist, uh, who was baptizing people there, and Jesus himself was baptized. We talked about John, uh, the, 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 the strange voice that God had put out there uh, to to uh, do something very, very special in the, in the wilderness. And Jesus himself came to be baptized. John objected. He said, look, I need to be baptized by you. Why do you want to be baptized by me? But Jesus said, suffer it to be so now, for thus it, it, it becomes us to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, he was identifying with sinful human beings, although he wasn't sinful himself. And as he came out of the water, he had a vision. Uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit, like a dove, rested on him. We don't know how many people saw it, but certainly Jesus did. And John was aware of it too. And the voice of God came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And that encapsulated two of the great promises of the Old Testament about the great servant of God who was to come. This is my beloved Son, echoed Psalm 2, which was the coronation psalm the kings of Israel. Jesus was a king. With whom I am well pleased, that came from Isaiah 42, the first of the four great servant songs in the book of Isaiah, which talk about the perfect servant of God who's going to suffer, who's going to be condemned for the sins of other people. And in that moment, God confirms and seals the mission that Jesus has now got to take and so you might think, well, okay, so here we go. Jesus goes back out of the desert and wow, things start happening. But do they? What you read next is, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And think, what? Anticlimax or what? What's going on here? Why this now? And uh, uh, what I want to do this morning is have a look at why this happens to Jesus right now, at the very start of his ministry, when he's probably just itching to get on with the things he's been called to. Why does he have to spend 40 days and nights in the wilderness, on his own, apart from the wild animals who are around, and just suffer this period of temptation? Uh, I want to ask three questions, really, in the next few minutes. First of all, why was Jesus tempted? Second, who was Jesus tempted by? Who is the devil, anyway? And third, how was Jesus tempted? And I want to just to gather all of that up and ask one more question, which is, how can this story help us? Because it's okay doing a history lesson, but you and I get tempted nowadays. And how does the whole story of Jesus' temptation help us right now to live our lives in Torbay this week? Well, that's where we're going. So let's look at the first of those questions. Why was Jesus tempted? If you're going to understand that, I think there are two things you have to get clear in your mind to start with. First of all, it wasn't the devil's idea to tempt Jesus. It's not that Jesus gets baptized by God and the devil suddenly wakes up. Ah, ha, ha, here comes the Son of God. Okay, let's get to work on it straight away. If I can put him off right now, this will be the best day's work that hell has ever done. It wasn't like that. It wasn't a plot by the devil. G. Campbell Morgan, a great preacher back in 1903, uh, said this in his book, The Crisis of the Christ. It did not, to use a common expression, happen that Jesus met Satan and was tried. It wasn't just an accident. Neither is it true to say that the devil arranged the temptation. Temptation here is in divine plan and purpose. Jesus went into the wilderness under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to find the devil. 
And Morgan says, my own conviction is that if the devil could have escaped that day, he would have done so. If Jesus had a tough time over 40 days and nights, the devil had it a lot worse. You should have seen the other guy. <laughs> so that's the first thing. It was no mistake. It was no accident. It was the plan of God for this to happen. The second thing you've got to get straight, I think, is that it was real temptation. You might think, oh, well, poor old devil. Here he is trying to tempt Jesus. And he doesn't realize Jesus is the son of God. It's going to have no effect. It's all going to bounce off him. Was Jesus really tempted? Theologians have struggled with this for, for many years. And they, 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 there's two Latin phrases. Excuse the Latin, but here we go. It's just explaining it. Um, uh, to descri describe the alternatives. One is posse non peccare. Possible not to sin. And the other one is non posse peccare. Not possible to sin. And those are your two options with Jesus. So some people say, perhaps Jesus had the power not to sin because he was human, but he still could have sinned. He still could have given in. He just didn't. Other people say, no, Jesus is the son of God. It was impossible for Jesus to sin because he was God. So the devil could come along and tempt him as much as he likes. Jesus is never, ever going to give in because it's impossible. He's God in very nature. God is truth from start to finish. God is light. God is, is, is the absolute antithesis of anything sinful. There is no way that even a, a human who is also God could fall into sin like that because Jesus just didn't have that in him. And uh, it seems to me that what the Bible points towards very, very distinctly is the one on the right-hand side there, non posse peccare, to not be possible to sin. It wasn't possible for Jesus to sin. He was God. The whole universe would fall apart if God started telling lies, going back on his promises, being less than faithful and just. The whole of our future depends on God's faithfulness. So you might say then, okay, if Jesus couldn't sin in the first place, he was just standing there for 40 days and nights saying, <laughs> come on, devil, do your worst. <laughs> I'm not going to give in, you know. You can try. Oh, that's a juicy one. Try another one. <laughs> that one didn't work, did it? It wasn't like that at all. And, and, and Jesus suffered through those 40 days and nights. Because if you think about it, when we are tempted, we know we shouldn't, but sometimes we can gain a bit of temporary relief just by giving in. When the temptation comes hot and strong again and again and again, human nature sometimes just gives up. We give up. We do sin. We repent for it afterwards. We feel ashamed of ourselves and so on. But we still do it. And it's a bit like, you know, if you've got a plaster cast and an itch inside it. <laughs> you shouldn't itch it, but you're dying to. You just want to get through. Well, with Jesus, the plaster cast was so thick. You couldn't squinch the itch. And that must be terrible, mustn't it? To feel all of the, the, the darts that the tempter can throw at you. To feel temptation at its full strength, as many of us never have because we give in too quickly. We just fold up. To feel all of that and be tormented and tortured in your soul and yet be unable to give in and gain even that shameful relief. It must have been a horrible, horrible experience. But that's what happened to the Son of God. Now, why? Why would God put him through something like this? Well, I think it's, it's a bit like that. If this guy here goes into a guitar shop to buy yet another guitar and uh, looks at what's on the wall, he's not just going to say, ah, yeah, eeny, meeny, meeny, moe, or, or say, ah, no, I like that black one on the end. I think I'll take that one home. I quite fancy playing that one. 
No, he's going to sit down and play them all. He's going to work out whether they're fit for purpose or not. He's going to put them through their paces. Actually, I used to work with a guy who was an absolutely brilliant Christian guitarist, a man called Keith Loring. And I remember once when he was in, in Sweden for a week doing some schools work with me, he said, I need to buy a new guitar. Can I go down to the local music shop with you? So I said, sure, I'll show you the way. And we walked into the music shop and the guy who was there uh, said, yeah, I want a guitar. He said, Keith said, can I just try that one up there? And his eyebrows shot up. He said, that's £400. That was a lot of money in those days. And uh, Keith said, yeah, but I'd like to try it. I could, I could buy it this afternoon. Well, all right, but be very careful with it. And he got it down and gave it to Keith, and Keith started playing a bit on it. And the guy's jaw dropped in. Ha, ha, OK. And Keith said, no, nah, I think, don't think it's good enough for me, is it? And he said, no, it's not. And, and he said, try this one. Try this one, try this one. He started getting all the guitars, the best guitars in the shop out. And Keith uh, had a go on them all. And in the end he said, no, I don't think they've really got what I'm looking for. And the man said, I know, I know. <laughs> it was just so good. But you see, you've, you've got to put it to the test like that, haven't you? And the only way that Keith knew it was worth spending his money in that shop was because none of the guitars were up to scratch for the job he wanted them to do. Now, God put, put Jesus through the temptation in order to show that he was perfectly equipped and ready to do the most important job in the history of the world. It was vitally important that it should be seen that he was ready. By who? By God? No, God knew already what he was dealing with with Jesus. And Jesus was, was uh, one of the three persons of the Trinity. So God had no doubts about Jesus. Other people might have, though. And Jesus himself, growing as a human being, wondering, have I got this right? Am I really doing my father's business? He needed to know that he had everything it would take to get him through the next three stressful years, right through the cross and out the other side. He had to be sure exactly where he stood. And so God allowed him to be tested to the limit to see that he would hold firm. And that's why Jesus went out with confidence, I believe, after the the. The, the temptations, and started just turning the world upside down. And John Knox says sometimes God had to test people, uh, because otherwise we'd never know what was going on. John Knox, of course, was the great uh, Scottish Reformation figure um, who wrote about the temptations of Jesus, and, and he said this, Who would have believed that the bare word of God could so have moved the heart and affections of Abraham that to obey God's commandment he determined to kill with his own hand his best beloved son Isaac? Who could have trusted that under so many torments as Job did suffer? He should not speak all his great temptations, one foolish word against God. Who, I say, could have been persuaded of these things unless by trials and temptations taken of his creatures by God? They had come to revelate by revelation made in his holy scriptures to our knowledge. And so this kind of temptation is profitable, good and necessary. You wouldn't believe the story of Abraham unless it had happened. You wouldn't believe the story of Job unless it had happened. And time and again, God puts people through experiences which are not pleasant and they're not the best thing you'd like to do for them, but which nonetheless show them and the rest of the world just exactly how firm their faith actually is. You see, this is so important to get established, isn't it? Early in your Christian life. Where do you stand? Who are you following? Because if you're drifting between two poles, what happens is you easily give in. If you don't have strong convictions about where you ought to be and what you ought to be doing, you're more liable to fold up and, and give in quickly. Ed Sheeran has been talking this week 
about um, how he gave up drugs after the death of his friend, the DJ, um, uh, who died uh, last year. And he said this, The A-Team singer 32 was so shattered by the February 2022 passing of music producer Jamal, who died aged 31 after a cardiac arrest brought on by cocaine and alcohol, said he decided never to touch drugs again. And he said, I was always a drinker. I didn't touch any sort of like drug until I was 24. And you think, well, if you made it to 24 without taking drugs, why did you start? And he goes on and says, I remember just being at a festival and being like, well, if all my friends do it, it can't be that bad. And then sort of dabbling. And then it just turns into a habit that you do once a week and then once a day and then like twice a day and then like without booze. It just became bad vibes. <laughs> And that's what can happen, isn't it? You drift into things because you've got no firm conviction in your mind, no resolution that you're going to stand against it. And when you do that, then other people see what's going on and you tend to lose your reputation. Very interesting uh, episode of Question Time on Thursday night. I didn't see it, but I read about it afterwards. When Fiona Bruce asked the audience, let's have a show of hands, shall we? Who believes Boris Johnson was telling the truth yesterday? And the cameras come to the studio audience, and that was a response. You see those hands shooting up into the air, clamouring to assert the honesty of the ex-Prime Minister. Didn't happen. Nobody believed him. Why? Because he's told lies in the past. His father, goodness knows how many children by how many different women. He's, 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 he's told blatant lies of all sorts all through his career. He's been sacked from jobs for making up facts. And uh, gradually, that gets through. And unless you're firm, you drift. So that's what the temptation of Jesus, it seems to me, was all about. That was why it happened. Second, you've got to say, how was Jesus tempted? And here, you, uh, you, uh, you've got to say, it really was a temptation. It was in every way as we are. Hebrews chapter 4, that we read at the start, actually says, There is no temptation that you and I face which Jesus did not experience in some form in those 40 days and nights. So lots of people read the story casually and think, oh yeah, yeah, Jesus went into the wilderness and uh, yeah, the devil turned up and oh, there were those three temptations, weren't there? And then he went home again. He conquered the lot. Yeah, that's what happened. No, no, it went on for 40 days. The three that we read about were just at the end. Bernard of Clairvaux, back in the 13th century, wrote a commentary on the story of Jesus' temptation. And he said, they who reckon only three temptations of our Lord show their ignorance of scripture. So don't be fooled. It went on for a full 40 days and nights. And at the end of it, the devil in desperation throws these three really strong temptations at Jesus. And those are the ones that we hear about. The three final temptations sum up all the rest. They're the three deepest and strongest. And they still will be in our Christian lives today. There was a temptation of comfort to start with. All these stones lying along the desert. You're, you're the son of God, aren't you? You can turn to bread. You're getting hungry now. It's been 40 days since you last had a piece of toast. Come on, make some bread. And Jesus must have been strongly tempted to make life just that little bit more comfortable for himself. And so many temptations start, don't they, from our desires, the things that are legitimate in one area, if not in another. And we just want something, whether it's food or drink or sex, or whatever it happens to be, we want something that we shouldn't have. It would be inappropriate at that point. The temptation of comfort comes from our bodies, and it's a strong one. But that one didn't work, and so there was a temptation of power. And uh, uh, the, the devil uh, shows uh, uh, Jesus uh, from the, 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 the uh, 
sorry, Jesus, it takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and says, look, are you the son of God? You say you are. Throw yourself down. If you are the son of God, sure. The angels say, whoa, mayday, mayday, alert, save Jesus. He's, he's, he's vital. He's got to, to stay alive till he's on the cross. Keep him alive. And he'll come and rescue you. So put it to the test. Why not? And sometimes power can be a temptation. Using your power. Doing things just because you can. Gaining power and hanging on to it. All of those things can be an important motivation in our lives. Just look at politicians. And the third thing is the temptation of possessions. Finally, Jesus is, is, is taken and shown all the kingdoms of the world. And uh, Satan says, you know, son, this can all be yours. All you have to do is worship me. Do you remember this? We had a look at this uh, uh, when we were doing Romans last year. Mind, will, and emotions. These are supposed to be the three different areas of your personality. And if you look at those three temptations, there's a temptation for each category, isn't there? First of all, the make some bread temptation. That's taking Jesus' will. Jesus knows he's in the desert for a purpose. He doesn't know how long probably it's going to go on. It's been 40 days and 40 nights already. And the devil says, how much longer is this going to go? I can see your ribs. I can count them. <laughs> you need to eat something fast, son. Go on. Use, uh, let your willpower be broken. Give into a bit of indiscipline. Make some bread. Then there's mind one. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. You say you're the son of God, but can you be sure about that? It's a pretty staggering claim. Just put it to the test. Test out God. See if it actually really works. If it doesn't, well, you'll have broken bones, but at least you'll have learned something. Third temptation is the emotions one. I'll give you all of this if you'll just worship me. Transfer your affections. Stop worshipping God. What's he ever done for you anyway? Just give me your allegiance and you can have everything that you want. And those three areas of temptation are still the ones that the devil addresses today, aren't they? He'll attack all sorts of different sides of our personality. Which takes us on to the next question. Who was Jesus tempted by? What do we know about the devil? Well, very, very quickly, because we're running out of time, we, the first thing you've got to say is he is a hostile power. The devil is somebody who doesn't like you very much. And everything he does is to tear down and destroy his name, Satan, well, it's not a name, it's a job description. It means the accuser. Somebody who tries to unsettle you. Somebody who tries to destroy your peace and destroy you too if you can. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, be self-controlled and alert because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He'll do all kinds of things. He'll bring all sorts of obstacles and difficulties into your way. And the main thing he uses, um, it says, the American preacher John Piper, is, to, uh, is uh, the unforgiven sin in people's lives. He says this, If your sin is forgiven and the wrath of God Almighty has turned away from you, then the devil is disarmed. The one deadly lethal tactic he has is to accuse you of sin and keep you sinning and to keep you away from Christ who forgives sin and removes the wrath of God. If your sins are forgiven and the wrath of God is removed from you and you stand righteous before God in Christ Jesus by faith and God is for you not against you, then the devil is rendered powerless. He cannot destroy you. But he will take away your peace. He'll take away your joy. He'll take away your certainty if he possibly can. That's why Peter says, be alert, be self-controlled. But he's not just a hostile power, like, say, electricity or the wind or something. The second thing you have to get hold of about the devil is he's a person. The Bible always 
refers to him in personal terms. If he's got a personality, that means several things. First of all, it means he's got a thinking mind. <laughs> he's able to make some of the things he's saying look pretty logical. Why don't you just do it? You're so hungry. God wouldn't mind you having a bit of bread. He gave you the stomach that needs food. Just fill it. Turn those stones into bread and away you go. And he can make the wrong things seem logical. I'm not sinning. I, it's my right to do that. I'm not sinning. I should do that just for their good. And we, we, we justify all sorts of evil actions simply because we can see a logical reason for them. The, I, the devil also has an understanding of psychology. He knows just to appeal to our minds to get us moving in a certain direction. And the third thing is he's got an ability to plan. And so the temptations that you find most hot and strong may not be the ones that most appeal to me. And he can strategize. He can make things come at just the right moment when we're most vulnerable. He's able to think. And that's why the Bible warns so many times and so strongly about this enemy that we're facing. But there's a third thing about him as well. And this is the important one. He's a defeated enemy. He can't do you any harm. God has a power that he doesn't have. And greater is he that is in you, if you're a Christian, than he that is in the world. For one thing, the devil has no right to win when he tempts you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. He's not particularly targeting you. You just get the same as everybody else has had in the past. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. When you feel, oh, I can't stand out any longer, I can't. You can. God will not allow it to go on beyond the point where you can't bear it. But when you're tempted, he'll also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There is no right to win for the devil. And the devil's on horrid time. Revelation 12, 12, which talks in picture language about the, 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 the woman who is a baby and Jesus and, and, and the, the difference that makes in the world. That then says, the devil is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. And one of the reasons that the devil doesn't like you very much and likes his job even less is because he knows he hasn't got it for much longer. He's living on borrowed time. And the third thing that the Bible says about him is he's only pretending. Submit yourselves then to God, says James. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. When he appears, he goes, <laughs> like uh, John's children this morning. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, what happens is you go, boo, and the devil goes, <laughs> and runs away. That's what happens. He's got no real power. And when you stand up to him, he'll put up a good show for five minutes. But that's all it is. So we reach finally the question at the end of it. We'd start a bit later this morning, but we'll be, we'll be finished in a minute. And I want to make two points here. How can this stuff actually help us live our lives as Christians? I think there's two points I want to make. The first is it tells us what to expect. When you look at what happened to Jesus, <laughs> that tells us what happens to us. Uh, it, it, the first thing that happens is it happened immediately after his baptism. Mark has only two verses about the temptation of Jesus, but this is something he stresses. It was straight away. Jesus took Jesus, uh, God took Jesus straight from his baptism while it was still a bit wet and sent him in the wilderness to meet the devil. Happened straight away. And I think that tells us that sometimes the devil will attack when we least expect it. When we think we're doing well, when we've had a great experience, when there's been a real breakthrough in our lives of God's power, that is when the devil is likely to come in hard. It went on for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, 
I don't know if it was exactly 40 days and 40 nights. Sometimes that expression is used in the Bible just for a significant period of time. But it always means a good chunk of time. Uh, for example, um, Noah, uh, the, the, the water came down from the flood on the earth um, 40 days and 40 nights. Moses had to go up the mountain to God uh, to get the tablets, and he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights. The Israelites got bored while he was up there and started having a party. As a result, Moses had to go up again, 40 days and 40 nights. The spies who went out to the promised land, 40 days and 40 nights before they came back and reported. Goliath went out in front of the army of Israel and challenged them and bullied them for 40 days and 40 nights before David fought him. Jonah went round Nineveh saying, in 40 days and 40 nights, this city's going to come to an end. And you get the picture, don't you? It means a significant period of time. A time that you might feel is never going to end. And so 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness tells us that the devil will show no signs of giving up. <laughs> Even when we're reaching the end, he's going to keep on pretending that he's got the power to spin this out. Then the next thing is the final push. <laughs> The three big temptations at the end. The devil is desperate, but he's not giving any sign of that. And he'll try hardest when he's about to lose. Then finally, after that, the interesting thing that really gives you hope is that the devil leaves Jesus for a space. He's got no more fireworks. He's got nothing he can do. He's just got to give up for a while. And you'll find that too. The devil will try to give you the impression, I'm going to keep going and going and going and going until you give in. It may be five years, it may be ten years, but you're going to give in. Not true. There comes a time when the devil has to stop tempting because it's just not working. And then the angels move in and give Jesus the heavenly resources he needed. And that happens to us too. The devil withdraws. Just for a while, he'll be back. <laughs> but he withdraws and God is able to give us a breather and refreshment and, and, and be ready um, and so the devil will have to retreat for a while. God won't let him keep the pressure up forever. So when you look at what happened to Jesus, you see a pattern, don't you, of the kinds of things that the devil can do and can't do with us. And it should give you some kind of perspective on what happens when we get tempted. But there's a certain thing to you, and this is the final thing, I promise, which is that it shapes us how to cope. You look at how Jesus dealt with temptation, and I wish I had another 15 minutes. I know I haven't got it, but I wish I had another 15 minutes to go into this one. Let me just make three quick points. How did Jesus cope? Well, the first thing you've got to do is discipline yourself. Jesus said no. He disciplined himself for 40 days and 40 nights. He focused simply on what God wanted him to do, and he therefore was able to withstand the temptations the devil threw at him. Sometimes it's the little things that get us down. George Verber of Operation Mobilization, when people say, I want to be a missionary, I want to serve God in the ends of the earth, I want to go to cannibal countries and daring things for God. He'd say to them, have you ever tried going three weeks without a Mars bar? Have you ever tried a week without a can of Coke? <laughs> because those can be the things that kill you on the mission field. The little things. It's not the big things. And I remember George saying once, you know, I, once I was, I was in Turkey and they put me in prison. Ha! And I was just having a fantastic time, glorying in the fact I was suffering for the cause of Christ. This was wonderful. Didn't hurt at all. He said, but one night in Ankara, Turkey, a flea got into my sleeping bag. And he said, that really made me question my faith and my mission and everything else. <laughs> and it can be that way, can't it? And the more you learn self-discipline, the more you can stand against temptation. Know your Bible. Jesus uses the book of Deuteronomy three times to answer the devil. 
And uh, he's got an answer straight away from Scripture that says, you're telling lies and I know it. I can tell you're telling lies because I know what God has said already. The better you know the word of God, the more you can cope with temptation. Third, you can chase the devil away. Just tell him where to go. As soon as you realize what's going on, tell him to his face to get out of it. Jesus says here, get away from me. And interestingly, it's the same word that he uses later on uh, in uh, chapter 16 of Matthew, when uh, Peter says to him, oh, don't be it far from you, Lord. You're not going to the cross. You're just having a bad day today. And he says, get thee behind me, Satan. He's not really talking to Peter. He's talking to the evil plotter, conspirator, who's trying to speak through Peter and deflect him from his course. And then he says, get behind me. It's all over with you. It's all finished. That's the last time you'll be able to do that to me. Because he's, he's, he, he's got used to pushing the devil right out of his life whenever that temptation comes. First Corinthians 10, remember, says God will always provide a way of escape. As soon as temptation arrives, look for the escape route. It's always there. And the more you get used to taking that escape route when temptation hits you, the stronger will become your ability to chase the devil away. So we end where we started. The words of the book of Hebrews. Since we have flesh and blood, he too shared in our humanity. He had to be made like us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and he might make a covenant for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's leave it there.